If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the aftermath of the Second World War, hundreds of former Nazi collaborators made their way to Britain. But only one was ever tried in the country for war crimes. That man was André Savoniuk. His sensational trial at London's Old Bailey in 1999 was a landmark moment in the battle to bring the perpetrators of the Holocaust to justice. In their new book, The Ticket Collector from Belarus, Mike Anderson and Neil Hansen recount the events of the trial, also exploring Savoniuk's wartime story and that of one of the key witnesses at the trial, Ben Zion Bluestein. They spoke to BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. And the first voice that you'll hear after Rob's is Mike Anderson. To begin with, I'd be interested to know what inspired you both to write this book and also why you've decided to write it now rather than, say, in the aftermath of the trial. So I followed the trial in 1999. I knew the uh, one of the barristers that was prosecuting the case. And uh, he told me about this trial and indeed the one preceded, and I followed it at the time in 1999. It was only 10 years later that we were talking about the trial, and I said, look, you must have so many people asking about this momentous trial, you know, an absolute first to have a Nazi prosecuted, not only the first, but also the last. And he responded that nobody had ever contacted him to talk about the trial. And I thought, well, somebody's got to do this, and having studied history myself, I thought I would give it a go. And then, Neil, what's your involvement been in the project? Well, I arrived at the party uh, a good bit later than Mike. But as soon as uh, he introduced me to it and I began to read some of the research material he'd already compiled, I realised what an absolutely compelling story this is. And it isn't just a misery memoir. You might think, obviously, there's some very dark things happened in the Holocaust and in, in the war generally. There's no, we're not hiding from that, but it's also, it's a really, really compelling human story. It's not just a whodunit, it's not a courtroom drama, though there are elements, obviously, of both of those in the story. But to me, the thing that really captivated me is that it's an absolutely fascinating human drama. It's almost a Cain and Abel story, if you like, between two characters who were childhood friends. One was a Jew, Benzian Bluestein. The other was a Pole who was right at the bottom of the pile in terms of Domoshevo in Belarus, as it's now called, where they both grew up. 
So they grew up as childhood friends and then separated and fought on opposite sides during the war. Savonyuk became a, a Nazi auxiliary policeman and allegedly helped to inflict the pain that they were causing to the inhabitants of Domashevo. And Benzine Bluestein saw his family completely wiped out by the Nazis, fled to the forest, survived there, and then joined the partisans fighting against the Nazis. Now, um, Michael, as you mentioned earlier, this is the only war crimes trial to have ever taken place in Britain. And it and it took place more than half a century after World War II had ended. So I, I'd be interested to know, why did it take so long to prosecute war criminals that were living here in Britain? So I think at the end of the war, uh, there were a lot of people, obviously, that came over from Poland, from Italy, from France, from lots of different countries. Now, how do you identify you know, who was involved in the genocide that everybody knew about from the Holocaust? And... The other problem, of course, is that there was no jurisdiction. There was no ability to prosecute uh, criminals, war criminals, or people who'd been involved in genocide, um, to try them. And in the UK court, absolutely no legislation allowed that to happen. So a specific law had to be passed, which was the War Crimes Act in 1991. And this was the most extraordinary piece of legislation. It enabled foreigners who had killed foreigners in a foreign country, and in this case, occupied by a foreign country. Absolutely extraordinary legislation. The reason it was so hard to track down Savonyuk was the Soviet Union were assiduous in pursuing war criminals at the end of the war, and they actually spent a considerable amount of time trying to trace Andrei Savonyuk. They sent people undercover, disguised as uh, peasant farmers, to actually live in Domashevo for a while, in the hope that someone would betray him. But there was no trace of him. And because of the poisonous state of relations between the West and the Soviet Union at the time, the information they possessed, which was already quite extensive, wasn't shared with the British authorities. The Soviets eventually discovered that he was living in in England, in London. In fact, he was working as a ticket inspector for British Rail for many, many years. But there was no way until the thaw in relations just before the end of the Soviet Union, when the uh, Soviet Union passed to the UK a list of 97 war criminals, among whom was Andrei Savanyuk. So, like you just said, the Soviet Union passed a list of close to 100 war criminals, and there clearly may have been other people living in Britain too. So why was it Savonyuk who was chosen to be, as it happened, the only person tried for war crimes in Britain? Well, as, as a matter of fact, you know, Neil's right, there were 97 names on this list, but there were also other names that had been given to the UK. And there was an estimate that there might be, at that stage, up to 400 Nazis living in the UK. And part of the problem is, first of all, are they still alive? Secondly, can they be found? And a lot of people had you know, changed their names, uh, moved to places where they simply couldn't be discovered. But the most important thing, obviously, as with any case, is that you have to have sufficient evidence to try a case. And when you think about it, you know, there's unlikely to be much physical evidence from any of these trials. They are from trials 50, 60 years ago. It's going to be difficult finding evidence. And as a result, there was a special war crimes unit that was established, part of the Metropolitan Police. And their job, first of all, was to identify cases that they felt that they could prosecute. And secondly, the evidence had to stack up. And there weren't many cases that did stack up. Uh, there were two cases that actually went to trial. The first one, which was done by the same barrister team, more or less, um, 
that one actually stopped after one week because the accused was found to have dementia and in fact he died shortly afterwards. So Savoniak, they had to have really compelling evidence and in this case it was witness testimony. The extraordinary thing about this case, it's a, it's a perfect example of the cock-up theory of history, if you like, that when the Soviet passed this information to Britain, they used the Russian spelling of Savoniuk's name, beginning S-A-V. Now, the Metropolitan Police, when they're searching their files, they search the first three letters of a surname, and they had the Polish version, which is S-A-W. And so Savoniuk, even though he hadn't changed his name, which perhaps in retrospect he might have wished he had done, was remained unidentified for years until one of them War Crimes Unit's own researchers found a, a reference to Savoniuk in a file in Berlin using the Polish spelling. When they alerted them, they immediately found him. He was living in Bermondsey in a council flat, and uh, by 1996, they discovered him. As Mike said, it took uh, three years of intensive research and constant visits to Domoshevo and to Belarus and to archives all over Europe to assemble the evidence against him. And it came down, really, to eyewitness testimony. And it brings up one of the great moral issues of this case. A famous jurist once said, justice delayed is justice denied. And you have to ask, and I'm sure the jurors asked themselves this at the end of the trial, 57 years after the event, how reliable can eyewitness testimony actually be? We all know when we share our anecdotes, we tend to polish them over the years. And there was also, and the defense made this argument quite strongly themselves. There's also a strong possibility that village gossip, rumour and so on was being substituted for, for hard evidence. The, the Savoniak case, in fact, uh, normally the police have an issue about trying to find witness testimony. And in this case, it wasn't that there was a shortage of witness testimony. In fact, the problem was, was that there were so many people who were prepared to testify against him. As one of the witnesses said, he killed more people than the hairs on your head. And they uh, got people into a room to start to talk about it. And they actually wanted people to testify. This is the defence to talk in favour of Savoniak to find redeeming stories and so on. And quite the opposite. There were people flooding into the room saying, I can tell you about another person he murdered, the baby that was stabbed, the 54 children in an orphanage. The, the stories just kept on coming. And then it was a question of sifting through those testimonies and making sure that the testimonials were sufficient, the witness statement, to actually prosecute him successfully. So was there much opposition within Britain at the time to, uh, about the delay in, in prosecuting Savoniak and whether he could really be given a fair trial after such a distance in time? It was certainly a powerful argument by the defence. And in fact, the War Crimes Act itself was fiercely controversial. Edward Heath, the former Prime Minister, was... Uh, very strongly opposed to it. It was pushed through because Margaret Thatcher was a keen supporter and had promised the Israeli government that Britain would do something about war criminals. And so this became a, a test case, if you like, but the only one that was ever prosecuted. And there was one extraordinary line from the uh, prosecution side and the war crimes unit side when they suggested that they weren't going to be looking for any other war criminals because they were only going to pursue people who'd been in a position of responsibility under the Nazis. Savoniak so was a uh, a police chief, an auxiliary police chief, and therefore he was fair game. And they were arguing that other Nazi collaborators lower down the pecking order were not fair targets. Now, that's absolutely contrary to what was argued at the Nuremberg war trials, where I was only following orders was not a defence against war crimes. 
And I think partly it was the huge expense of the uh, the war crime unit investigations and mounting this trial, which ran into millions and millions of pounds, perhaps persuaded Britain, we've shown that we're uh, pursuing war criminals, maybe we won't do it again. And Mike was talking about the the, the witnesses and the eyewitnesses to this. The, one of the many, many fascinating things about this is there was only one Jewish witness in that trial. I mentioned the Cain and Abel figures of Benzine Bluestein and Andrei Sivaniuk. There were 4,000 Jews approximately in Domashevo at the start of the war. There were just 13 by the end of the war, and one of those was Benzine Bluestein. He emigrated to Israel after the war while Savonyuk came to Britain, and for 50 years neither of them were aware that the other one was still alive. And when Scotland Yard detectives went to trace Bluestein and went to see him in uh, Israel and told him that Savonyuk was alive, he was determined to testify, and he became one of the key witnesses. These two childhood friends have been brought back together at last in the Old Bailey in London. There, there, there was indeed opposition to uh, to this prosecution, and generally, in fact, the legislation. And it's one of the things that really grabbed my attention. I've mentioned that the 1991 War Crimes Act was quite extraordinary legislation. But it was legislation that wasn't easily passed. And in fact, they had to use the Parliament Act to assert the supremacy of the House of Commons over the House of Lords. Now, what that means, or the background to it, is that the House of Lords rejected the legislation three times by a margin of two to one, as against the margin that was proposed in the House of Commons, which was a reverse two to one in favour. So there's this logjam, this extraordinary logjam, um, which meant that the House of Lords rejected it, whereas normally, of course, they always come to some accommodation with the House of Commons. And the Parliament Act's actually only been used four times ever, and only one time ever by a Conservative government. And that was this time, So it was extraordinary that it was passed. Um, I think also we talked about the fact that Savonyuk and Benzion Bluestein knew each other when they were younger. And this was one of the things that came out of this story for me because when I began my investigation, I was captured by the barrister's side about the trial, about the War Crimes Act, about what happened, about the horrors that he did, which had been explained to me in some detail. But I suddenly realised that there was a much deeper personal story. Because as I worked through the uh, transcripts of the court, the prosecuting counsel said to Benzion Bluestein, did you know Savonyuk before this trial? And he said, it's only a single line in the trial. He said, yes, I did know him. We went to school together. We were friends. We swam and we played together. Now suddenly that one line in this whole story captured a deeply personal story that said something that was much bigger than just the court dramas, as it were. You know, it's not simply about a prosecution. It's two parallel lives, you know, that came together. And I think that that personal story is quite an exceptional Holocaust story and a unique British one too. So on that note, what was the role of the local civilian population in the Holocaust in Belarus? Because these two figures were friends before the war. So what happened that meant one of them ended up being involved in the murder of so many of Benzium Bluestein's family, friends and his community? Well, Andrei Savoniuk was at the bottom of the heap socially in, in Domoshevo. He was an illegitimate child at a time when illegitimacy was a great, great stigma 
And his mother was desperately poor. They lived in a shack in Domashevo, and they were right at the bottom of the pile. And for many years, he was bullied, he was abused, he was uh, laughed at by his fellow villagers. And then when the Nazis came to power, I think it's one of the misunderstandings that the Nazis, the SS, carried out all the slaughters of Jews around Europe and all took place in concentration camps. Thousands thousands and thousands of Jews were killed by Nazi collaborators, by local people. There certainly weren't weren't enough German soldiers to carry out the executions they wanted to. And German soldiers who were family men began to be shocked and horrified by being asked to kill women and children. And that's where collaborators allegedly, like Savaniak, stepped in. And they proved to be even more ruthless in in many cases than the uh, Nazis they were replacing. I think another interesting aspect about Savoniak is that he started just as a volunteer in the police force. He was aged, I think, 21. But within a couple of years, he was not only head of police, but he was later promoted to the Waffen-SS because of his enthusiasm for violence, for murder, active participation in the Holocaust. And he earned the nickname Andrusha the Bastard. And the villagers said when the police visited Belarusia that if Andrusha ever went back to Belarusia, he would have been murdered by the villagers for everything that he did. And it wasn't simply the Jewish population. He was actively involved in killing partisans and he was actively involved in killing anybody connected with the partisans and indeed actively involved in killing people who had no relation either with the Jewish population or with the partisans. He was... Uh, very keen on murdering literally anybody that came across his way. Yes, again, of course, these are allegations by villagers often based on gossip and rumour. And the defence argued, I think, in part that he'd been an abused and despised member of the community all the way through his life and he'd just become a convenient scapegoat. And they were using him, they'd lost family members in the war and so on, and they were using him, they were blaming him for things that other people had done. And it did come down to eyewitness accounts. And again, how trustworthy is an eyewitness account 60 years after the war? So when the trial was continuing, it was by no means certain whether the jury would would convict or would decide there just wasn't sufficient evidence. You don't have to be innocent in British courts. The charge just has to be not proven or on the balance, there has to be a balance of doubt. But I think one of the great things about this story, quite aside from the extraordinary, unique trial and the courtroom drama that surrounded it, is that it's also a great tale of human survival, courage, and indomitable human spirit. And it brings the story, I think, to a really life-affirming conclusion. This man, Benzian Bluestein, fled into the forest to escape the Germans. He didn't even have a pair of shoes. He was in a Polish forest in the middle of winter with just bits of sacking wrapped round his feet. And somehow he and two or three other Jews who he encountered there managed to survive. They scrounged, found enough food food to survive. And eventually they joined up with the partisans, fought with the partisans through the rest of the occupation of Domoshevo. And when the Red Army arrived and uh, Savoniak and others fled for their lives in front of them, then Benzian joined the Red Army. And he went on with them. He helped to liberate the Majdanek concentration camp and saw for himself for the first time, as, as they all did, the extent of the horrors of the concentration camps and was actually involved in the liberation of Berlin as well. But again, I, I want to stress this isn't a downbeat, terrible story, something that will leave you feeling 
depressed and miserable at the end of it. I feel it's a really life-affirming story that comes to a, a very satisfying conclusion. And I think one of the great things Ben Zian said when he was asked, you know, what would he say to the Nazi oppressors today? They'd wiped out his entire family. And he just said, look at my, I'd tell them, look at my large family living in our own independent country today and tell them we won. Yeah, I, I just wanted to to add to that that I think that the words Holocaust victims has a certain resonance that we all understand because of all the things that we've read, all the things that we've seen, whether it's on TV and films. But the story about Benzion Bluestein is somebody who fought back. And in writing this story, it's a story of heroism, courage, and justice. And for me, one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this story, having met the Bluestein story, having befriended them, I visited them in Israel, they visited me in London, is that there are six million dead Jewish souls from the Holocaust. And many people think that that is a story, a story of six million dead. But it isn't. It's actually six million stories. And the vast majority of those stories have been gone because families and communities were absolutely annihilated. And so what I wanted to do was to bring out this story, one of those six million stories. And because of the research that I've done and because of the uh, the, the cooperation that I had from so many people who were involved in the story, you know, we managed to track eight decades of stories of the parallel lives of Benzion, Bluestein, and Savoniak. And that is why it's the full story. It covers those eight decades. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's staggering to think of the number of people who must have passed through London Bridge Station in the course of those 25 years and handed their tickets to him, and uh, nobody had ever realised who this man was and what he was alleged to have done. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. And one thing we haven't actually talked about yet in this interview is how actually Savonia ended up in Britain, because we, we see him in Belarus and his participation in these terrible crimes. How does he then end up being a ticket collector in London? Well, Belarus was part of Poland at the time uh, Savoniak and Benzie and Bluestein were born. So he grew up speaking Polish and with a Polish birth certificate. And even though he fled with the Nazis and actually served with the Waffen-SS for a while, he then deserted and managed to persuade the uh, the Polish free forces that uh, he was a, a legitimate member. He claimed to have been a forced labourer in Germany. So he signed up with them, stayed with them for the remainder of the war, though he was never, as far as we can see, involved in any fighting. And then at the end of the war, there was a Polish resettlement scheme where Poles who didn't want to return to Poland, which was now a communist country, could come to Britain instead. And a quarter of a million of them did took advantage of that, among whom was Savoniuk and, and at least 100, probably hundreds, maybe even a thousands of Nazi collaborators and war criminals who all filtered into Britain. So that was how he came to be here. He uh, took various jobs. He worked as a ticket inspector for 25 years. And it's uh, it's staggering to think of the number of people who must have passed through London Bridge Station in the course of those 25 years and handed their tickets to him. And uh, nobody had ever realised who this man was and what he was alleged to have done. And he was a, a very surly and morose character. We managed to locate somebody who'd uh, worked with him at uh, London Bridge, who told us that he never had a smile or a friendly word for anyone. But uniquely among his fellow employees, he never engaged in conversation, kept his head down and kept himself to himself. And uh, when the trial began, they began to see perhaps why that had been. So the trial was focused on four specific allegations of killings that he had allegedly participated in. How difficult was it to keep the trial focused on those specific events rather than the enormity of the Holocaust in general and also Savoniak's many other activities that weren't part of these specific charges? You have to remember that the Holocaust was, of course, you know, 60 years before the trial. And many of the people who were on the jury didn't know a great deal about the Holocaust. So what was important was that they needed to have an understanding about what this trial was all about, that it wasn't just, you know, four random charges of murder. So the first witness was a professor from America who was an expert in the Holocaust, and he began the trial by telling the jury all about the Holocaust and about the background to it. So this huge backdrop about what the crimes were behind the story so that people could understand Savonyuk's role in it. But we know that this is connected to crimes of genocide and to the Holocaust. But under English law, there is no crime of genocide. So they had to use murder, you know, the normal definition of murder or of manslaughter uh, under British legislation. And you can't have charges of murder of 15 people it has to be murder of one person. So in the trial itself, the four witnesses testified about the murder of 20 people, many of them who were people unknown. Uh, their identities weren't verified. But there were four specimen charges, so the four witnesses each testified against a single charge of murder. Um, there were, however, 20 witnesses. And many of those other witnesses were there to tell the story about other things that he, that he had done. Um, and that was background 
material that gave an insight into the type of person that Savonic was. And this really addressed the whole point about, is this village gossip about Savonyak? Did somebody else do it? And suddenly, conveniently, all of the charges of death and murder were allocated to him. Um, so it was highly relevant to have individuals to say, let me tell you about this most extraordinary story. And th- these are the kind of details that are covered in the book, which are most extraordinary um, about things that Savonyak did that persuade you that he was an extraordinarily violent man. Yet another remarkable aspect of this trial, this was the only time in in British legal history that a a British court had actually left the country and reconvened in a foreign land. And the jurors, the judge and all the uh, lawyers with a a large press retinue actually went to Belarus and visited the sites of uh, the alleged crimes that had been committed there. And on their way, they encountered some absolutely remarkable characters, some extraordinary, bizarre locations. This is 10 years after the... uh, end of the Cold War, basically, but Belarus was still frozen in aspic as if the, the Soviet bloc was still there. The, the state's re- responsibility was to give a job to everyone who wanted one. So the village store in Domashevo had six women in white coats standing there to serve customers. And just like in the Soviet era, all the shelves of the shop were completely empty, apart from one piece of cheese sitting on the shelf for the length of it. So these these details, the Intourist Hotel in Brest is a bizarre and wonderful tale of going to a hotel where if you uh, ran out of toilet roll, you had to take the empty cardboard roll to the reception desk before they'd give you another one. The windows were cracked, there were no plugs in the sinks, no bathrooms, and though the hotel restaurant had a lavish menu, then uh, everything that the uh, party tried to order, the waiter would just go, nyit, nyit, nyit. And eventually, the only thing that was on the menu was the boiled chicken. So one of the uh, party ordered the boiled chicken, and his companion said, well, I'll have that too. And the waiter said, nit, he's had the boiled chicken. (laughs) So luckily, there was an Indian restaurant next door, which is a bizarre story in itself. It was an an Indian who'd bought the place sight unseen, thinking that it was in Brest in France rather than Brest-Litovsk in Belarus, and only discovered his mistake when it was already too late to withdraw when he'd paid his money over. So he came to Belarus anyway and became the, the only the only Indian restaurant in uh, in Belarus. So, that, I mean, there is some humour in the story. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a laugh-a-minute tale. But it is, uh, we feel, we both feel, I've, I've written 70 books in the course of my career, and though I, I might, maybe I would say this anyway, wouldn't I, but this is, I feel, the best book I've ever been involved in and the most extraordinary and compelling story. I mean, yes, it absolutely is an incredible story. And Actually, at the time of the trial, how much of a media circus was there around this? I mean, I, I should remember this because it was, you know, it was twenty years ago. But was it a really big story at the time? Yes, it was. A, it was a massive story. It was in all the papers, and they followed it throughout the trial. Um, and uh, we managed to approach some of the journalists who actually covered the trial, who were so enthusiastic. One of them was so enthusiastic that he wanted to write a book himself. But uh, he didn't feel that he had enough material to do so. Um, So, yes, a huge media coverage, um, a huge amount of interest uh, and and lots of personal aspects about it. So at the time, yes, very much so. However, think about it. This is 1999. So this is before the Internet. So the mechanism for media at that time was TV and um, newspapers. So that's the way that it was covered. Um, and I suspect this is one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about this. 
I said the barrister who I spoke to 10 years after the trial, who really piqued my interest, he mentioned that he felt that this trial was likely to become a footnote of legal history. And I felt that that that, that wouldn't be right. This was something that really needed to be captured whilst many of the people involved in the trial were then still alive. And we had the luxury of speaking with these people. But I must say, we've we've had a lot of luck in uh, carrying out the research for this book. But as uh, Gary Player once said, uh, the more you practice, the luckier you get. And I must pay tribute to Mike, who's really unearthed extraordinary details in this story, found people who either nobody else had found who had never been willing to speak about their experiences before. And one blinding stroke of, it might be good fortune or it might be just sheer persistence, when Mike managed to find the only set of uh, complete transcripts of the trial available and all annotated by the trial judge who added his own rather waspish comments at regular intervals through the trial. And that was an absolutely diamond resource that we wouldn't have had without his uh, persistence and, uh, and the intelligence to see an opportunity and and go and grasp it. Now, I don't know whether you want to actually um, give away the the verdict of the trial and what what actually happened in the end, but in general, how was the trial received as a whole in Britain? Was it seen as a positive event, as something that had been worth doing? I'd also be interested to know how Jewish groups reacted to this important trial. Yes, I I think there was a big uh, support, a popular support for this trial. It's interesting, there's been a double page spread in one of the major newspapers uh, last week, which is based on the book. And when you look at the comments, probably 80 to 90% of people say this was justice served, this was the right thing to do. For these type of crimes, you should always be tried, you should never be allowed to get away with it. And that's also what we're seeing now in other countries where people aged in their late 90s. And for one person who was aged 100 to be tried, for the Jewish community, again, you know, this is justice. And it's not simply looking back. Um, I think one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about this book is because it does look back. It's a lesson from the past. It's also a warning for the future. And I think that's also what the Jewish population felt about these type of trials, is that the expression never again, never again can always happen again unless we learn from the past. And having both spent so much time with this trial, have you both formed a view about, you know, the value of tri-war criminals from World War II or or from other conflicts several decades later? Do you think it's something that can still be done effectively and should still be done? It is a tricky moral question. We've talked about the interval of time between these crimes being committed and uh, the perpetrators or alleged perpetrators actually being brought to justice. And in some ways you feel, is it really fair that some 78-year-old man should be hauled in front of a court and put on trial for something that happened so long ago? But at the same time, crimes like these were so despicable, so horrific, that you really feel there is no argument for saying, no, you shouldn't be put on trial because he's an old man. If he committed these crimes, and that's an open question as the jury retire to consider their verdict, then he should certainly be tried for them. And if found guilty, he should certainly be sent to jail for the rest of his life. I think that um, you know international trials, we've seen the creation of the International Court at The Hague. Um, we've seen uh, the crimes that happened in countries in Africa, the crimes that have happened in Yugoslavia. And I think that there's a growing recognition that we can't simply leave countries by themselves to be able to serve justice, that we've all got a responsibility. 
And uh, I, I'm very much in support of that. Um, it's a highly legal question about how we do that. You know, how do you prosecute people who've been involved in deaths in one war scenario to another? So it's highly legalistic, and it's that is not my expertise, uh, nor indeed Neil's. Um, and we have to leave that to international jurists and to our criminal systems to determine what types of crime should be prosecuted in the future. Um, okay, Michael and Neil, I mean, that's been really interesting to hear your answers to those questions. Is there anything else really important that we should have discussed that I haven't put to you yet? I think one thing I would want to say is about Benzion Bluestein. Now, uh, I had great problems finding Benzion Bluestein, who was desperate to speak with about it, to tell the other side of the story, because Zavonik's story, in many ways, had been covered with the trial. Uh, it took me a long time to find him, um, and uh, uh, it, it basically involved going to Israel in the hope of finding him. Uh, and I used an intermediary, and I then discovered that Benzion Bluestein was dead. Uh, but his son, who was then aged 70, agreed to meet with me. And we talked over a four-hour meeting about the work that I was doing, about trying to tell this story. And he said at the end of the meeting, my family will trust you on this, and I couldn't have had a greater privilege for the family to support me in telling the story. I think Holocaust survivors and their families find it very difficult to tell the particular details. And I've certainly come across that problem because the book is a multi-threaded story. There's lots of people who are involved in Domachevo who then pop up during the course of the book. Uh, and I've managed to speak with many of them. Um, so there were seven partisans that Benzion Bluestein um, remained in contact after the war. And I've spoken with all of their families. And in fact, believe it or not, two of those partisans are still alive. So I've had conversations with them. So trying to bring those personal stories together into one book to bring an integrated story. Um, and the, the trial is centred around it, but the true stories between two people, Benzion Bluestown and Savonyuk. That was Mike Anderson and Neil Hansen, the ticket collector from Belarus, an extraordinary true story of Britain's only war crimes trial. is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. And if you're interested in learning more about the Holocaust, then there's plenty more material, including personal stories from those who experienced it, available at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.